good to be back, kind of. Air isn't as clear here, but the people are good. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Second Peter chapter 1. We'll be there eventually, but not for a while. But that's where we're going to end up. Last week, Justin started a two-part series on psychology, which I am going to end this morning. There is uh, August. So many people are gone in August. There are lots of visitors and lots of people on vacation. Vacations kind of hover around August as kind of the main vacation time. And so we make August kind of an issues month where we might do some topical sermons. And, of course, we've had our um, time uh, doing Bible questions and answers where I just address some of the questions that you have um, from the Bible on different issues. And so we will be doing that at the end of the month. And it's just a time where people aren't going to miss a big chunk of a series. And so this morning we are going to end this little two-parter on an issue that I think really needs to be addressed in the church today. And that's the whole issue of psychology. If you were to just be in the world today and read the paper or magazines or talk to neighbors or uh, co-workers and you'll hear them uh, refer to their psychologist or their psychiatrist or or maybe even some medications they're taking or their medications being adjusted for, you know, whatever uh, frenia they might have. The world, for the most part, have come to believe and trust that psychology is a legitimate scientific field of study. You see this even in courts of law where psychologists are seen as authorities of human behavior. Now, I'm not going to tell you everything Justin told you last week. If you weren't here, you need to get the tape or the CD or listen to it on the web. But uh, I just want to highlight the essence of what Justin told you last week. And then this morning we will continue from there. Last week, Justin taught you that psychology is a field of study invented by God-hating atheists who reject the Bible, who reject biblical methods for dealing with people's spiritual problems. He taught you that there are over 250 schools of thought within psychology, meaning there is no uniform system of belief within psychology. Like the people in the times of the judges, there is no king over psychology and every psychologist does what is right in their own eyes. Psychological practice is as numerous as there are psychologists. Psychology is not a science. It is a religion based on humanistic evolution. Now, what I want to do this morning is try to help you understand psychology better. I want to give you some very broad pictures and generalities. I know that everything I say is not going to apply to somebody who calls themselves a psychologist, but this is an attempt to help you understand what is mostly true in most cases about psychology in general. We will first look at categories of those who study the soul. Secondly, we will look at the presuppositions that psychology has in 
opposition to the Bible. Third, methodologies of psychology. Fourth, the definition of biblical counseling. And five, the foundation of biblical counseling. So that's going to be our plan of attack. What about the categories of those who study the soul? You need to understand this so you, so as I go through, you kind of can categorize who I'm talking about. First, we learned last week that psychology is a word that, me, that comes from psuche, the Greek word for soul, and ology, the science or study of, the study of the soul. And there are several camps, and these are the three big camps. There are psychologists who are unbelievers. This is a person who does not believe the gospel, does not believe the Bible, is dead in their trespasses and sins, blinded from the truth, is a slave to sin and Satan, and has gone to one of the many schools that teaches psychology and has earned a degree. He chooses to believe and practice whatever he personally deems is true and relevant in among the very many 250 plus schools of thought. He may not see the problems that he deals with as spiritual problems. Nevertheless, they are spiritual problems, but he doesn't acknowledge it. He attempts to use worldly means and methodologies of treating problems that are spiritual and can only be treated with biblical means and methodologies. Then there is the Christian psychologist. This title would fit someone like Dr. James Dobson, who is probably the most well-known Christian psychologist I believe Dobson is a Christian. I think he understands the gospel, uh, that he is trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ to save him. Yet he is a Christian psychologist. He is one of those Christians who has been swept away by the notion that psychology as a field of study has something to offer Christians. And their walk with the Lord and their growth in godliness and coping with their spiritual problems. He is what might be called an integrationist. That is, he integrates some things from worldly psychology into the Bible and its means and methodologies. He is an integrationist. And, of course, every Christian psychologist does not believe in the same parts or tenets or presuppositions or methodologies of psychology. So you can't categorize anybody in one specific category because each one tends to pick and choose what they think are the good parts and which, what parts they think are bad. Now the title, Christian Psychologist, is somewhat of an oxymoron. As the Bible has nothing to do with the worldly philosophies of men... And it makes you wonder why anyone would try to call themselves both Christian and psychologist in one breath. Well, there are many reasons, too many to discuss right now, but in general, many who call themselves Christian psychologists are very well-intentioned. They may be saved, they may love the Lord, they may want to help people, have a love for people. And they have received and worked hard to receive a degree in psychology in their desire to help people with their problems. And in their mind, they have learned a lot of stuff which is garbage and trash. And they're thinking, I'm going to pitch that 
and I'm going to only hold on to those parts of psychology that agree with the Bible and are good. Then there are biblical counselors. And there is another name for a biblical counselor, and that is a Christian. A Christian. A true believer in Jesus Christ. All believers are called to give biblical counsel to each other and to unbelievers. Each Christian has different degrees of biblical knowledge and how to apply it. Yet all are biblical counselors and commanded to be so in the word of God. The biblical counselor rejects psychological presuppositions, methods, and practices. They trust only in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to provide solutions for people's problems and true life transformation. And just so you know, there are many out there who call themselves biblical counselors who are not. They are integrationists. That is, they have borrowed things from worldly psychology and have merged it with the Bible. But the foundational differences between psychology and biblical counseling lies in their presuppositions. Now, what is a presupposition? A presupposition is something you presuppose to be true. Let's say you're in the kitchen. You want some water. So you walk over to the sink and you grab the lever and you move it. And water comes out. Now, why did you grab the lever? Because you know from experience that when you move the handle, water comes out. You presuppose that to be true. And so you act upon what you believe or presuppose is the truth. And so let's look at some of the presuppositions of psychology. And I want you to know this is not true of every psychologist and it is definitely not true of everyone who calls them a Christian psychologist, but some of these things are true of pretty much everyone who claims the title psychologist. These are not all the presuppositions that could be listed, but some of the overarching general ones that are true of most psychologists in most schools of thought. First, God does not exist and if he does, he can't, people can't have a personal relationship with him. That's one of the first presuppositions they make. God does not exist. The problem is, the Bible says, the fool has said in their heart, there is no God. Secondly, they believe the Bible is not God's authoritative, sufficient, inerrant, and infallible word. The Bible says exactly the opposite. The Bible says God's word is truth, is perfect, because men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Third, psychology believes that understanding evolution, not the Bible, is the foundation for studying man and his problems. In other words, humanistic evolution is the foundation for understanding man and his true problems. What this means is, because that is the foundation of psychology, everything built on that foundation is wrong. Comes from a faulty foundation. Four, they believe that people are generally good by nature. 
The Bible says men are conceived in sin, born in sin, go astray from birth. They do evil from their youth. They are totally depraved in every part. Five, they believe that people have the answers to their problems inside of themselves. The Bible says that the person who trusts in his own heart is a fool and that there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. The Bible says that the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. And the Bible says that the answers to man's problems are outside of himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the scriptures. Six, they believe that the solution to dealing with men's problems come from studying the past. The Bible says no workman after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit to enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul says forgetting what lies behind and pressing on towards the mark is what we are to do. You don't dwell on your failures. Seven, they believe you can deal with people's spiritual problems by physical and worldly means. Having rejected God, the Bible, and spiritual issues as a legitimate reality, psychologists seek to help people by methods that do not provide any lasting change. Worldly techniques and medications are used in an attempt to deal with people's sin, and it just doesn't work. The Bible says that salvation and sanctification are the only means of life transformation. Nothing else works. Eight. They believe we are the way we are because of what someone else or some other thing has done to us. This is the same reasoning that Adam and Eve tries to use against God. God says, hey, what did you do? Well, it was the serpent. He deceived me. It was the woman you gave me. It's her fault and your fault for giving her to me. Blame shifting. No, the Bible says that each one is tempted and carried away by their own lusts. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The Bible says that no temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And that God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape, so that you will be able to endure under it. So, if you are tempted and you succumb, guess whose fault it is? Your fault. And if I sin, it's my fault. No one makes you sin. Sin is always a choice. Nine, they will tell you that people can have mental problems that have nothing to do with spiritual issues. Psychologists see mental problems as non-spiritual or off-spiritual. Anxiety, worry, fretting, uncontrolled anger, and a host of other sins like that are given impressive clinical names, blamed on the past, blamed on some unknown chemical imbalance. Listen. Chemical imbalances can be tested, and don't let everybody tell you that you just have some generic, unknown chemical balance. Get a test and find out what it is. Demand to know what it is. It's just an excuse to give you drugs to to treat the symptom. The Bible teaches that men are composed of two basic parts, the body and the soul. They are physical and spiritual 
If something is not physical, then it is spiritual. And the spiritual must be dealt with by spiritual means, not with worldly methods. And we're going to talk about this more in a bit. Ten, they believe people with serious problems can only be treated by professionals. And this is probably one of the greatest lies that has crept into the church through those who call themselves Christian psychologists. The Bible says that any believer who knows the Bible and knows what it says to any given issue can help another believer who has a problem in that area and is responsible before God to do so. The woman who is caught in adultery was given counsel by Jesus. Go, sin no more. Complicated, huh? That was what she needed to hear, and that is what Jesus told her. She didn't need lithium. She didn't need Prozac. She needed to deal with the sin of adultery in her life, her immoral lifestyle. And any believer who sees another believer struggling with any issue, if they know what the Bible says, can give them biblical counsel. Now, you don't need to be a professionally trained counselor to tell somebody what the Bible says. And you especially don't need to study psychology so you can tell people what the Bible says. And it is true that someone who has studied the Bible more, somebody who knows the scriptures better, who has had experience talking with people, has experience asking questions, making observations, and helping people apply the scriptures, may be able to help another believer more efficiently or effectively because of their experience and knowledge, but never by the lie that you need to go to a professional. Anyone who knows the word of God can help anybody else with a problem, a spiritual problem. Know this, all believers are called to be counselors, encouragers, admonishers, reprovers, rebukers. Any believer can help another believer with a spiritual problem. They can say, you know, know, the, the Bible says this, and I've tried this, you ought to try this, I'll hold you accountable, let's study, let's look up some verses, let's have a Bible study, and help them with their spiritual problem. You don't need to go to somebody with a PhD, post hole digger. 11, they believe that salvation, scripture, prayer, and the Holy Spirit are simplistic, inadequate, and unable to help people with their modern, sophisticated problems. But I want you to know that there is nothing new under the sun And all sins that men commit are the same sins they've always committed, just in a different age. A psychologist sees someone caught in rampant immorality, and they may say, it's good for somebody to express their biological self, and don't worry about it. Or, if they don't believe immorality is good, not because of what the Bible says, they don't believe in the Bible. They just say, you know, it's kind of impractical, it causes maybe relationship hassles. Maybe you get, you know, a sexually transmitted disease or something. Or, so they give a pragmatic reason, and then they just tell the person, you know, your problem is you have a sex addiction. You just can't help it. Of course, the Bible says they have a sin problem, and they can help it, and they need to repent and grow in godliness. That's what the solution is to their problem. 
Is this simplistic? Yes. Is it true? Yes. We need to restore someone, though, in a spirit of gentleness. We don't say, hey, pal, you're sinning. Cut it out. Buck up. I mean, I'm not having a problem with this, so you shouldn't have a problem with this. You know, get your act together. No, the Bible says that we come to people with great patience, gentleness, and instructions. Patience implies that it's going to be a process. Gentleness is the way that we preach them meekly and humbly, looking to ourselves, lest we too should be tempted, taking the own log out of our own eye, as Jesus said. And then you give them instruction from the Word of God, knowing that God, through His Word and the work of the Holy Spirit, is what changes people and makes them different. So all of us can be biblical counselors. We all trust that. The fact is that salvation, the scriptures, prayer, the Holy Spirit, the church, discipleship, all those means God has given us in his word are the only way to help people with their spiritual problems. No other method from the world works and or gives glory to God. A person through worldly means and self-determination may achieve what seems to be like a very chaste and holy lifestyle. You know, you can um, move out to the desert, live in a little mud hut, you know, be a monk. Not say any bad words, not do any bad thing. I mean, there's just sand, dirt, water, and a little bit of food out there. And so you live off the land and you pray all the time. You can still be a children, a child of Satan. You can still be headed for hell. And nothing you do can please God if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It doesn't bring glory to God to just in your own fleshly efforts try to be good according to your own standard. You must use God's methods... And God's means, because those are the only ones that will change you and make you more into the image of Christ and allow you to give glory to God, which is the purpose for why you exist. Now, you might wonder why any Christian would want to align themselves with or put a label on themselves such as psychologist, seeing that from last week and for what I just told you about the presuppositions that the whole field of study is just unbiblical and anti-God and anti-Bible. People have a lot of reasons. And their reasons are seem to be good at sometimes. I mean, sometimes they just say, well, you know, um, I, you know, I want to help people and, and if I... If I don't get a degree in psychology, then I won't be seen of as authoritative in the eyes of the world. And I want that. Or I won't be able to work in a place and get paid. And I want that. You know, I won't, I won't have clout in the academic world if I don't get a psychology degree. The reasons are legion. Usually Christian psychologists argue that psychology has some good things. You can go there and pitch a lot of it, but there are some good things and you can keep those good things and you can throw out the bad and it sounds reasonable at first. But what would you say to me if I came up to you and said, you know, what I want to do is I want to call myself a Christian Mormon. 
And you look at me and you say, wait a second. I mean, why are you calling yourself a Mormon? Well, I'm not a Mormon. I'm a, I'm a Christian Mormon. Well, why would you do that? Well, hey, I've studied Mormonism and there's some good things in there. You know, they have a real sense of community. And, and um, you know what's neat about it? Is not only do they have a sense of community, they have haircuts like mine. They're clean shaven. I like their black ties. And they're really good with family. And man, those things are good. So what I'm going to do is call myself a Christian Mormon so I can have influence among Mormons and they'll respect me. The problem is that Mormonism is a satanic cult spawned by the doctrines of demons, teaches a false, doc, a false gospel, and people who believe what Mormons teach go to hell. So why would I ever want to tag on Mormon onto my Christian name? Why would I ever want to attack, attach psychology onto my name, which is a religion spawned by Satan? Get the tape last week if you weren't here. Developed by men who hate God and said things like, you don't need God, you don't need the Bible, it doesn't even... I mean, they didn't even give any credence to the Bible whatsoever. Religion is nothing more than a figment of your imagination. Now... You might think to yourself, well, can't you just borrow the hope? I mean, I mean, psychology does have some good principles, doesn't it? Sure. You know, they tell couples, you know, you need to talk. You need to communicate. Do you need to do that? Sure. Is that good? Sure. But listen to this. There is nothing in psychology that is good that is not already contained in the Word of God. There is nothing in Mormonism that is good that is not already contained in the Word of God. You don't need to borrow a title because they have nothing to offer. God existed before them. The foundation of psychology is built on an anti-God, anti-Bible foundation and hence has nothing to offer those who are called to love God and walk according to the Word of God. Anything worth applying from psychology is already found in the Word of God. So, you probably know how I feel about it. Okay, what about methodologies of psychology? Let's talk about this briefly. Let's give you some kind of general understanding of of what happens when somebody goes to a psychologist and what's going through a psychologist's mind when he, having ruled out God in the Bible, is trying to help somebody. Again, methods vary. But here are some common kind of uh, scenarios. Because psychologists reject the Bible as authoritative, they also reject biblical diagnoses of men's problems, terms used to describe men's problems, and solutions used to help men with their problems. Because of this, they have to redefine sin with psychological jargon. You know, one of the things Justin mentioned last week was oppositional defiance disorder. Which means rebellion against authority. Which the Bible calls sin. 
All of man's problems of sinful behavior are renamed into all sorts of things. You've got all these titles. He's got schizophrenia. He's got bipolar disorder. He's got manic depressive. He's ADD. He's, you know, he's got this. He's insomnia. Okay, okay. He's got those things. All the, the, the terms are changed to describe all these problems that people have. And many of those terms are used to describe sin. Now, you have to understand this. If the Bible says something is a sin, and you don't believe the Bible, and you don't even believe in sin, there is no God, there is no judgment, we, we aren't going to be held into account, we're just animals that climbed out of some primordial slime, then when somebody has a sin problem according to the Word of God, but you don't believe that, then what do you call it? Oppositional defiance disorder. Or something like that. You see, in order for a psychiatrist or a psychologist to get money from insurance companies, they have to treat disorders, not sins. I mean, can you see a psychologist writing down to Blue Shield, this person's in sin? (laughs) Shared some scriptures with them for a while. Got him involved in a discipleship group, 18 hours at $235 an hour. Please pay up. But I'm telling you, they'll pay for oppositional defiance disorder. They won't pay for sin. Insurance companies are not going to pay for treatment and prescription drugs to try and cure someone's willful rebellion against God. But they will treat a disorder or an ennia or whatever. But if you take sin and give it a different name, blame it on the past, blame it on the brain, blame it on some chemical imbalance, then you can get cash and cash is king to most people. In fact, in 1997, this is you know quite a while ago, the average psychologist made $199,000 a year. This is the average psychologist. Makes you all want to go be one, huh? This is the main reason why psychology continues. Even though after a century of psychology, psychologists themselves admit that there is no scientific evidence whatsoever that psychology is helping people with their problems. It is a false religion, not a science, and money is the engine that perpetuates it. So a psychologist diagnoses people's spiritual problems with modern terminology and tends to treat these problems with worldly means and they get paid big bucks to do it. Psychologists have become such an authority that their word is just taken for absolute fact in a court of law. You know, you'll have some witnesses there. One's a psychologist, he's got a degree and he believes in one of the 250 schools of thoughts or some of each of those schools of thoughts, schools that disagree with each other. And if that guy says, you are an unfit mother, you're an unfit mother. It's over. No disputing. He's an expert. And many in the church have been sucked into psychology by those who call themselves Christian psychologists. Christian psychologists will sometimes call things sin, and other times they borrow terms from psychology. 
Sometimes they will give people biblical ways of dealing with their sin. Other times they use psychological means. And so now there's this this infiltration of these methods and means developed by God-hating atheists that are creeping into the church. And pretty soon the church is doing all these things that are anti-God, anti-Bible, and really can't help people with their problems. In fact, they make them worse. If you don't use biblical means and you don't use biblical methods, it doesn't help sin, it makes it worse. That's why we don't encourage anyone to go to a psychologist. I mean, who knows what they believe? Justin showed you last week, and I've shown you this morning that psychology is nothing that Christians need. Nothing. Psychological solutions to problems are often very bizarre. You know, you and your wife are having problems, you're angry at each other. Here, each grab a rubber bat and in uncontrolled anger just beat each other. Oh yeah, get it out of your system. You need to express yourself. You're having a problem with low self-esteem. I mean, I don't know who got, you know, the picture into your head that you're a sinner. You're a good person. Now put pictures all over your wall and in your car and on your mirror and you can look at yourself and you are so wonderful. You are so great. You are a good person. You are God. You can be anything you want. Just look at yourself. Tell yourself that. Visualize it. Self-actualize it. Make it happen. (laughs) We're all laughing because we know. We hear this all the time. Yep. It's not a sin. There is no sin. It has nothing to do with God. God doesn't exist. Judgment is not coming. We are merely animals of higher evolution. That's the foundation. Some psychologists do give some good advice. You know, talk to each other, uh, encourage communication, practice self-control, be faithful. Not all of them are the same. Not all the schools are the same. And psychology... Often does things that are right. Don't get me wrong. I'm not just giving a categorical statement. It's all bad. The degree gives somebody the right and the authority to receive money from insurance companies and things like that. But the psychologist determines what parts he's going to grab onto and what parts he's going to reject. And since there's no standard, you don't know what you're getting. You could go to 10 different psychiatrists, tell them you are lusting to have an immoral relationship and get 10 different recommendations and solutions to your, quote, problem. If they even indeed see it as a problem. And I tell you, it's not a problem. Go do it. There is no standard of truth because there is no authoritative standard guiding that field of study. One of the most common forms of treating people's problems today is with medications. Medications. These are called psychotropic drugs, you know, Prozac, lithium, things like that. They are drugs that alter your mental processes chemically. Again, money is behind all of this because the pharmaceutical companies are making billions of dollars off of these medications. I think right now in the medical field, 40% of all medicine deals with psychology and these types of drugs. 
It's a billion dollar industry. And the pharmaceutical companies, because they're making so much money, get their claws into the schools and the colleges and the universities that are training psychologists. They teach them to rely on these medications to help people with their problems. If he's depressed, give him this thing, man. This pill will make him happy. It'll fix him, right? It'll make him happy for a while. Someone comes to a psychologist entrenched in the sin of fretting and worrying, so much so that the person can't sleep at night. They're tired and fatigued and exhausted during the day. But because they have become experts at fretting and worrying, they're given medication, and lo and behold, it works. They can sleep at night. They just conk right out. They sleep the sleep of the dead. It worked, right? They take the pills... Sleep like a brick. They feel rested the next day and now have more energy to practice fretting and worrying. The pills have given them energy so they can sin harder. And they do. Because the problem has not been dealt with. The symptom has merely been suppressed. The person actually becomes more entangled in their sin because instead of using some self-control to deal with their fretting and worrying, they're using none because they don't have to because the medication is helping them with that part. Soon the medication stops working, so they're given more drugs that they take during the day because now they can't even function during the day or the night. So they're given some mild ones during the day, which kind of slow them down a little bit, but help them be a little bit more mellow. At nighttime, a little bit stronger dose or a different dose or a different kind of drug. Now they can sleep at night too, and it seems to be working, right? Well, it's giving them the effect that they want, but is it dealing with the problem that's causing their sleeplessness? No. Still, the sin of anxiety and worry is not dealt with, and they continue to become more and more entangled in their sin. Finally, they get sick and tired of taking all these medications. You probably know somebody like this. They sit there and they think, you know, every morning they get up, they got all these pills, and they're taking them at lunch, they're taking them at night. I mean, they're slaved to all these medications, and they're, they're tired of paying for them because now the insurance companies quit doing it, and they're expensive, and so they just say, man, I am pitching this, I am going to dump these in the toilet, and they do, and they say it's over, the medication wears off, and they go postal. You know what that means, don't you? Do you know that all the shootings and all the high schools are all from kids who are on medications and went off? Why is that? Because when you're relying on medications instead of self-control, then when you go off the medications, you're so not used to practicing self-control, you just disintegrate. And then what happens? Well, you fall apart, you have a nervous breakdown, you come crawling into the doctor's office, or your husband carries you in in the fetal position, and they says, oh, you know, she quit taking her medication, she thought she was going to just quit, and he goes, oh my goodness, here, start taking these. He gives her some more, and all of a sudden she's back, and she can function. She's, quote, better now. And because those psychologists have ruled out the Bible, ruled out God, ruled out biblical means of diagnosis and biblical methods for treating the sin of anxiety and worry, the sin is never dealt with and they're worse now than they were before. And they're just on more medications and they're caught in this vicious spiral. They don't know how to get out. They're just enslaved to these medications, which is exactly what the pharmaceutical companies want. Now, if a person came to me 
Don't get me wrong, I'm not going to say that, oh, all medications are bad. They aren't all bad. But listen, the medications are not the cure of people's problems. Somebody comes to me, I say, hey, listen, stay on the medications. You deal with your doctor and that. Go to a medical doctor. Listen, let's talk about the Bible. Let's talk about what the Bible says about your problem and the biblical solution to your problem. Disciple them, get them some training, then hopefully defer them to a Christian doctor, a Christian doctor who believes in the Bible and understands the person's real problem and then have that doctor oversee their slow and gradual weaning off of that drug or those medications so that during that time they're constantly being discipled constantly being encouraged constantly being overseen so they able to rely more and more on god's grace and his resources and function without drugs you know people say that drugs are for those people who can't cope with reality and that's true but with god's grace you can cope with reality because reality is for people who can't cope with drugs medications might also be used at times for people who are just so entangled in certain sins and certain problems you know people people are good at sinning i mean we're we're good at it we sin ourselves into a into oblivion sometimes i've had people in my office that i can't even talk to them I mean, you know, they're, they're changing subjects, they're darting, I try and talk, and they're just, you know, and I'm trying to get the, the Bible set, you know, I mean, I can't even get in. It's like, man, we need to turn this person down, slow them down a little bit. And sometimes medications might be used for a short time to help the person maintain some control, but it's not the cure. It's never the cure, and it's only for a time, for a limited number of time, until they have the real cure and the real transformation, which comes through knowing Christ and knowing God's Word and applying it. You know, somebody, let's say, is worrying, and they're anxious, and they're so stressed out that they get this bad headache, and then they come into my office, and go, God, i got a bad headache, I've just been worrying all the day. Well, I don't say, well, don't take any aspirin, suffer. <laughs> yeah, that'll teach you. No, say, take some aspirin, get rid of your headache. But now let's talk about what's causing your headache. I don't say, well, you know, if you always worry and are anxious and are sinning against God in that way, here's a large bottle of aspirin. Whenever you get the headache, take the aspirin. That doesn't cut it. No, they must need, they must learn to meet their spiritual needs by biblical ends. Not worldly means. But what can complicate things is this. Sometimes spiritual problems, sin issues, cause physical ones. Now the medical field and drugs are good at teaching, treating physical problems, but they aren't good at te- treating spiritual ones. The problem is, you know, you can worry and fret yourself into an ulcer. And now, what happens? See, now you've got this problem that is spiritual, but it's affecting your physical being. 
Well, in that case, when somebody comes to me, I tell them to get any physical problems, any physiological problems, you suspect a hormone imbalance, you know, whatever, you go to the doctor, you get treatment from the doctor, spiritual issues, I can help you. I can help you with that because the word of God is sufficient. For instance, you have a person come in and they have an unbiblical view of self, of the purpose of their existence. They think their value is all cut up in the way they look, especially in the skinny way they look. And so they begin to starve themselves. They want to have control over their looks, and so they starve themselves. And by inches and pounds, they slowly commit self-murder, suicide. They go to a doctor, and the doctor says, you have anorexia. Anorexia is the medical term given to those who starve themselves for selfish reasons. It is categorized as an eating disorder, which is the medical term. Biblically, it's just a sin problem or a number of sin problems causing this effect in their life, this starvation. Now, we are not going to counsel a person like that not to get medical care. They need medical care. They should have medical care. But listen, the solution to their problem is not to stick a tube down their throat and force feed them forever. It's to deal with their unbiblical worldview. Their unbiblical view of self. Their unbiblical view of self-worth. Their unbiblical view of what makes them valuable. Then once they have that, then they start eating, then they don't need any medical treatment. But the force feeding does not help the spiritual problem. Modern medicine can deal with physical symptoms and problems caused by sin, but they cannot deal with the sins of selfishness and an incorrect view of self or a desire to have control instead of leaving that control into God's hand and denial of what is right. God's word has the solutions to that. Now let's talk about biblical counseling a little bit. So what do you do as a biblical counselor? You're a Christian, you're a biblical counselor. Here we are, we've got a lot of them. Well, if you come to one of the pastors or elders or people in this church, hopefully we're going to give you biblical counsel. That's what we're called to do. You can expect us to have biblical presuppositions. What this means is that you can expect us to trust in the sufficiency of God's word, the Holy Spirit, the church, discipleship, prayer, all those godly disciplines to not only address your problem, but to change you and make you different than you ever were before. You can also expect that we will not assume you are saved. Let me say that again. You come in for biblical counsel, we will not assume you are saved. Why? This is so critical. If you don't know Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You can't please God. You can't understand the things of God. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You have none of the resources you need to get over any spiritual problems. You have one huge spiritual problem. And that spiritual problem is you are in a rebellion against God. The wrath of God abides on you and you're headed for hell. And so if you come to me or come to Justin or come to one of the pastors or one of the elders, they're probably going to say something like this. So tell me about your walk with the Lord. So tell me when you became a Christian. So tell me, how did you become a Christian? So are you sure you're going to heaven? So tell me, if Jesus said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What's the gospel? What does the Bible say about salvation? And how do people get saved? If you don't know the answers to that, 
If you give the wrong answer to that, we're going to assume you're not saved because you're not saved. If you don't know the gospel, if you don't know how to get saved, how can you be saved? There is only one way, one truth, and one life to get saved, and that is by trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, we can't help you with anything but the gospel. You must first be saved. And once you are saved, you have all of God's resources available to you to deal with any spiritual problem. Now, the problem is, is we can't save anybody. Only God saves people. So somebody comes into my office, I question them, they don't know the gospel, they're trusting in their works, they have no idea how to get saved, no idea what the Bible says. They call themselves a Christian though. I say, listen, I don't think you're a Christian, you need to get right with the Lord, and I share the gospel with them. If they don't repent, I give them tapes and say, go listen to these over and over again. Come back when you've repented, when you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you understand the gospel, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. If they do... God's grace is sufficient. If they don't, they can't become like Christ. They can't overcome their sin. They are slaves to sin. Slaves to Satan. Salvation must come first. This is one of the problems with Christian psychologists. They often assume people are saved because they say they are. Now, If someone is truly saved, though, still the biblical counselor, that's you, if you're saved, you cannot save them if they're not, and if they are, you can't sanctify them. What that means is, is you can't make them more like Christ. That's a work of God. He sanctifies people. You are merely an information broker. You are there to give them the truth and to explain to them the meaning of it, how to apply it. You may model it before them, but you cannot make them more like Christ. God does that. Now, he does it through the truth, and you are the truth broker. But if the, you, know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And some Christians just love their sins so much, they're entangled in so much, they just say, sorry. I'm not going to obey God. Okay. But it's not for lack of means or ability. As far as God's grace is concerned, it's for lack of want. The biblical counselor is one who listens carefully, diagnoses accurately, defers all physiological problems to medical doctors, then with great patience, gentleness, and instruction, explains, interprets, and helps people apply the scriptures to their problems. And we're all called to do that. We're all biblical counselors. Probably didn't know that, but you're going to leave a biblical counselor today. So what's the foundation of biblical counseling? Second Peter 1. Turn there. We'll just end with this. If you want more detail on this passage, I'm just going to briefly touch on. You can look on the website or call the office. I preached two sermons on this section. When I first got here, you can get the entire series, which is, I think, eight tape series on the Word of God. And uh, it addresses all of these issues in great detail. But I just want to point a few things out to you here in Second Peter 1. Notice in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says, A bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice this. Who is he talking to? 
Those who have received the same faith, these are believers. Keep that in mind. Remember what I said. If you're going to give somebody counsel, they have to know Jesus. So if they don't, you become the evangelist. Secondly, he says in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied you. How do you get God's grace and peace multiplied you in the knowledge of God? Where does the knowledge of God come from? The Bible. Where does the knowledge of Jesus our Lord come from? The Bible. Verse 3, seeing his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Where does that come from? Through the true knowledge of him. Where does that come from? The Bible. Verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Where do they come from? The Bible. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, or at the beginning of verse 5, Now for this reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supplying moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness. Notice what he's doing here. He's saying this. He's saying, what you need to do is you need to have the same faith as ours. That is, you need to be saved. You need to grow in knowledge of God and Jesus. Once you grow in knowledge of Jesus, the true knowledge, the precious and magnificent promises of God, you then begin to apply it, applying all diligence in obeying what the Word of God says. Verse 8, For if these qualities are yours, all of these godly characters are yours, and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the what? True knowledge. Do you see a theme here? For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. In other words, when you apply, when you know Jesus, you know the word of God and you apply it, you will be purified from your former sins, your problems, your spiritual problems. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, that is, apply the word of God, you will never stumble. That is sin. Verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. What way? Know Jesus, know the word of God, diligently apply the word of God. That's it. That's why he goes on to say in verse 19, and you would do well to pay attention to the more sure word of God. More sure than what? Than experience. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, God's word is able to equip you for everything pertaining to life and godliness. Psalm 19 says, it is perfect, restoring the soul. If you don't know Jesus, then faith comes from hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God, you've got it. You're catching on. Bottom line, you don't need psychology to deal with your spiritual problems. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we were able to look at so much material. I thank you for everyone's patience as we covered so much. Father, I just pray that we would be patient with those who maybe have been caught up in psychology and, Father, are just growing. Help us to be patient with those who, with all good intentions, want to merge psychological practice and techniques with the Bible. But Father, help us to speak the truth. Help us to realize that the world and its wisdom has not come to know you. And the wisdom of the world is foolishness to you. And that there is a way which seems right unto a man, but man's ways lead only to death. Father, we trust you. We trust your word, the sufficiency of your grace, and your word and the Holy Spirit to both save people and sanctify them, dealing with all their spiritual problems.
We thank you for that. And Father, now as we are dismissed, I just pray that these truths would be embedded in our mind, that we not, might not be deceived by some of the errors out there in the world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.